Amen. All right, take your Bibles tonight to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. And we have been, for the last, I don't know, five or six weeks on Sunday night talking about music and its importance and um, why we do and don't play the music that we do and don't play here in church. And I think why it's important that you do the same thing in your own personal life as well. But tonight, I want to basically refute one of the main tenants, if you will, of CCM, Christian Contemporary Music. One of the primary supports for CCM is that their position is that instrumental music is, is neither moral nor immoral. They say that it's amoral. Amoral, ah, that word ah means no. So like, here's a perfect example. Amusement means no muse, right? So when you're amusing yourself, you're not thinking, and that's why it's called amusement, no think, right? Amoral means no morals or no morality one way or the other. And when it comes to Christian contemporary music, what they say often, and they argue that only the words make a song moral or non-moral. Um, the, the music itself is amoral, which is why you can have a song that sounds exactly like rock music, but then you put Christian words to it, and it makes it a Christian song, and it makes it okay. That's, that's their position, and that's why. It's not, the, it's not the music that makes it bad. It's the words that make it bad. Um, but is that true? Is that true? There's a, there's a book called Music and Morals by uh, a lady named Kimberly Smith. She wrote it in 2005, and throughout that book, she states often, that the morality of a style of music is going to be evident in the behavior of the people who listen to that music. I, there's a trend going around right now, and I know uh, TikTok is popular. I don't have TikTok, but you see some of the different things, you know, YouTube or wherever else. And uh, there's a trend going around right now that says something like, play this music to your toddler and see if they start dancing to the music. And it's really, so then you're supposed to play this little song and record your kids while they're, while they're doing, the, while you're recording it and just see what their reaction is. And I mean, there's, there's some words to it as well. I don't even, I, I don't know what they are, but you start playing the song and it's got this really heavy beat to it and everything else. And these little toddlers look like they're barely big enough to even stand, start dancing to the music and doing all this kind of stuff. It's actually kind of funny to watch. But that just goes to show you that there is nothing such as an amoral rock beat or an amoral, you know, instrumentation. It's not just the words. Those kids, if, you know, whatever those words are, they're not listening to the words and deciding whether they're going to move their bodies or not, right? They're just listening to the music. And, and look, you've been, at, you've been at a baseball game or different places before, and it comes on, and what's your natural, you know, what do you want to do? You want to stand up and do the thing that everybody else is doing, right? There don't even have to be any words to it, because it's, it's, the, it's the rhythm, it's the, it's the music, the instrumentation that does that. So the dominant form of music in the dominant culture of the world is rock music. We've, we've pretty much established that over the last few weeks. And the dominant aspect of this dominant music is rhythm and the beat. So assuming we ignore the words, is there any problem with this rhythm-heavy beat-soaked style of music. I say that that's immoral rather than amoral. For the last couple of weeks, you've, you know, we've, been, we've been looking at the connection between the style that's called rock music commonly um, and looking at the, the, the rock music and its connection to the occult. We've looked at rock music and its connection to drugs. 
Um, and tonight, I want to establish in your mind, it kind of as a third part to this, what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, is that this same rhythm-heavy style of music corrupts people's sexual morality as well. And what he says there in James chapter 3 and verse number 15 is this. And he talks about a lot of these different things. The, the, he's talking about the world and the things that the world produces and everything. And he says this. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. And that's what the title of this lesson is tonight. Earthly, sensual, sensual, devilish. And I think you can tell the direction that we're heading with this. Um, but I want you to remember that this is the music that is being accepted and is being pushed on us in a lot of Christian churches today. Uh, through the form of, of contemporary Christian music. And some of the most popular places when it comes to Hillsong and Bethel music and all of these other places, I mean, when you look at them, you can't tell any difference between the church and a rock concert. Correct. But is, okay, take that aside. Is there something wrong with the music that they're playing? That's what I want to look at tonight. First of all, I want you to see this, and keep your finger there in James chapter 3. We're going to come back to that one more time, but I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Number one, I want you to see this. The Bible says that we can determine the morality of a type of communication by the behavior of the people who hear it. We can determine the morality of a type of music by the behavior of the people who are listening to it. I hope we'll make sense out of that when we read this verse and talk a little bit about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 33. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Now, that English word manners is the Greek word ethos. That's the only time that this, ver that this word is used in the New Testament, and it's simply defined as morals or habits. One of my Greek dictionaries defines it this way. The inherent complex of habits and attributes that determines a person's moral and ethical actions and reactions. Now, in 21st century America, we generally use that word manners to refer to what we'd probably call like common politeness, right? What you would just do in society. Don't put your elbows on the table. Don't chew with your mouth open. You know, be polite to people. Open the door and so on. That's just good manners, right? But the word has a lot deeper meaning than just polite customs of a civilized society. Dictionary.com even describes manners or defines manners as, quote, the prevailing customs, ways of living, and habit of a people. I think that the King James translators chose very well when they chose this word, uh, manners. It's the thing that makes up a commonly held set of good habits or bad habits. It's the, it's the thing that, that is, is really the morals of a people. Albert Barnes is, is a commentator. He's, he's been dead for many years, but he said this about this verse. The sentiment of the passage is that the intercourse of evil-minded men or that the close friendship and conversation of those who hold erroneous opinions, or who are impure in their lives, tends to corrupt the morals, the heart, and the sentiments of others. Matthew Poole, another commentator, said this, Though you may judge that they talk but for discourse sake, yet their communication or discourse is not, and will influence men as to things of practice and debauch men in their morals. A.T. Robinson has a book called Word Pictures in the New Testament, and he also agrees with these sentiments. He said, the old word, kin to ethos, custom, usage, morals, here it's talking about good morals. And I know we're, we're taking a long time to kind of talk about this and define this, but I think it's absolutely important that we understand that this is so necessary because 
the importance of this cannot be overstated. And when it comes down to it, the single biggest argument being swallowed today by American Christianity in relation to their music is that it is neither moral nor immoral. And nothing can be further from the truth. Uh, it's, 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 they say that it's neutral until somebody add, adds words. That's going to determine if it's a worldly rock song or if it's a Christian rock song. When you put the words in there, that determines whether or not it's a good song or a bad song. But an understanding of this verse, I think, throws that argument out entirely, completely, in every aspect. What is music? We talked about that in the very first lesson. It's an emotional language, right? It conveys a lot of things. It conveys a lot of emotions. And we use music to, to express our emotions in a lot of ways. What do languages do? Languages communicate something. So how do you know a particular communication is evil? By looking at what it produces. By looking at who is listening to it and what it is producing in their life. An evil manner or a way of living corrupted morals. So if I'm right that music is an emotional language and, and if I am right that there's a basic immorality to this beat-heavy uh, music known as rock and roll, then it's be relatively easy to establish the fact that uh, that this music is wrong, especially since this is the dominant form of music in, in Western culture, and, and, and it really is. But I think, in other words, sexually immoral behavior should be seen widely in those who are heavily involved in rock music, right? If this is producing bad manners and corrupting good manners in the people who are listening to it, then we should see that be, being a very rampant thing in the rock and roll scene, right? Um, we could stop right there because I don't think it's very much of a secret that that's exactly what you see happening in most, if not all, of the rock music scene, right? I mentioned this last week, but sex, sex uh, drugs, and rock and roll, those three things go together. It's almost a cliche, right? You see, uh, you know, uh, mom, baseball, and apple pie. Those things just go together, right? And, and those things are things that we associate with the American dream, the American living, and so on. But those three things also go together, and they become so blatantly obvious that that is what is involved in the rock and roll scene. That is very, it's, it's basically indisputable, and, and it's been observed by intelligent people um, that are students of 20th century music. So we see this, first of all, and I think this is where we need to establish this, is that the Bible says that we can determine the morality of a type of communication by the behavior that is produced uh, in those who hear it. The second thing I want you to see is this. Many others in the secular area see the strong connection between rock music and immorality. And I want to read you a, a bunch of different quotes, um, many of them by... Honestly, as I, you know, as I was reading through some of these different quotes that, that, are, that are very easy to find and very much out there, by, and I don't listen to rock music, so I, don't, you know, I, I, don't, I couldn't tell you most of, uh, I couldn't tell you probably any songs that any of these groups sing, but they're popular because I know their names. And uh, you'll recognize their names too, maybe not the name of the actual person, but you'll at least recognize the name of the band. Um, the rock and roll band that, is, that, that this person is associated with. But let me read you a few of these things. Some of them come from books before we get into some of these quotes. But uh, this one is by a cultural critic, Martha Bales. She wrote a book called Hole in Our Soul. 
the loss of beauty and meaning in American popular music. She said this in that book, the West is the only civilization to have created an art form whose sole purpose is to attack morality. That's rock music. That's the music, and I want you to think of this. I want you to keep this in your mind as I'm reading these quotes. This is the music that is being played in our churches, and, being, and, and we're being told that there's nothing wrong with it, that it's completely fine, that as long as we put Christian words with this music, then it's perfectly moral to do this. This is, this is uh, by Alan Bloom. He, he wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind. He wrote this. Rock music has one appeal only, a barbaric appeal to sexual desire. Not love, not eros, but sexual desire, undeveloped and untutored. Rock gives children on a silver platter with all the public authority of the entertainment industry everything their parents always used to tell them they had to wait for until they grew up and would understand later. Terry Knight, he's the manager of a band called Grand Funk Railroad. He said this, Listen, man, what takes place on the stage of a rock concert doesn't happen spontaneously. It is carefully planned to elicit a sexual response from the audience. These guys are being honest. And I guess, I guess you at least have to applaud their honesty. Adam Ant said this, pop music revolves around sexuality. I believe, if that, I believe that if there is an anarchy, let's make it a sexual anarchy rather than political. David Krebs, he's the manager of Aerosmith. Here's one band that I recognize. When you're in a certain frame of mind, particularly sexually oriented, there's nothing better than rock and roll. Well, let's go play it in our church. Let, let's go pretend like everything's, is, everything's good, right? Steven Tyler, he is the lead, I don't know if he's the lead singer or lead, lead whatever of Aerosmith. He said, rock and roll is synonymous with sex and you cannot take that away from it. It just doesn't work. Glenn Fry of the Eagles, I'm in rock music for the sex and narcotics. Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones, you can feel the adrenaline flowing through your body. It's sort of sexual. I entice my audience. What I do is very much the same as a girl's very inappropriate dance. Freddie Mercury of Queen. I do deliver sex appeal. It's part of modern rock. Jim Morrison of The Doors. I feel spiritual up there. Think of us as erotic politicians. John Oates of Holland Oates. Rock and roll is 99% sex. Andrew Olden, manager of the Rolling Stones. Rock music is sex and you have to hit him in the face with it. Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin. Rock and roll is sexually you music. Gene Simmons of Kiss. That's what rock is all about. Sex with a 100 megaton bomb, the beat. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on with all of these people who are actually being honest about what rock music really is. Now, let me explain to you how the term rock and roll came to be in the first place. And if you, if you knew where rock and roll music came from and the term rock and roll and where it came from, you'd be embarrassed. The historically accurate truth is that Alan Freed, he was the one that first popularized the term rock and roll. And this goes back quite a ways. But he almost, and there's, there's, there's no 100% guaranteed definition that this is, he never, he never said, this is where I got it from. But... There is a, a group in 1951 called the Dominoes, and they were an R&B band, and this was kind of the kind of the R&B was kind of the precursor to rock music. It was not rock music, so to speak, like we think of rock music today before this time period. But um, rhythm and blues—that's what R&B stands for, by the way. But he had a he had a, a song that was a hit called "60 Minute Man," which is an absolutely vulgar song. 
Um, adults, if you want to go look up the, the words to that later on, I'm not going to read them. But the dominoes got it from the popular usage of the term that was in these juke joints and, and the R&B circuit of the 1940s American South. And with that fact, this rock music critic and historian, Michael Ventura, emphatically agrees with this. He wrote an essay and the, the language, and, and he's just, again, he's just being honest about what this was. The language in that essay is, is too, um, too graphic to even quote it with specificity. But the paragraph ends with this. When finally, in the mid-50s, the song started being played by white people and aired on the radio, rock around the clock, good rockin' tonight, reelin' and rockin', the meaning hadn't changed. The word was so prevalent that the music began to be called rock and roll by disc jockeys who either didn't know what they were saying or were too sly to admit what they knew. And the term stuck. And I think what happens in 1950s, 1960s, these disc jockeys were too embarrassed to even talk about it on the radio. So they started using this term rock and roll to describe this type of music because it was so vulgar and so inappropriate and they started trying to pull it out of these clubs and try to pull it out of these, you know, these juke joints where all kinds of sin was going on and try to push it mainstream. But in order to be accepted mainstream, they had to, they had to make it more acceptable. And so this, this term rock and roll music uh, has a very vulgar beginning and obviously a very vulgar middle and a very vulgar continuance. If you just look at what these people are saying, this is what this music is about. Tell me that music is amoral. Tell me this music is not immoral. Tell me that you can play this music in the church and pretend that it's something that God is pleased with. Tell me that this is something that you can get up on the stage and rock out to and have it be a wonderful worship experience. How can you say that with a straight face, especially if you know where it came from? Well, we're a long way from there. Things have changed over the years. What's changed? Nothing's changed. It's still the same music. It's still the same beat. It still has the same history. It's still, these guys are people who are still singing today. It still has the same meaning behind it. It still has the same representation. It still elicits the same effects. It still brings out the same results. What's changed? Oh, we just put Christian, music, Christian words with it. And then it's no longer immoral. How can you say that? The third thing is this. I believe that all of this is because rock music's dominant appeal, dominant appeal is to the body. Remember that we talked about the fact that, that all music is made up of melody, harmony, and rhythm. And again, melody, harmony, and rhythm are not bad on their own. Even mixed together, they're not bad. There, there are people who, uh, I, I guess it's more of just a theory, but they theorize that melody and harmony speak to our soul and spirit and that rhythm speaks to our body. I, I don't know about the first part. I'm not, I can't say with certainty that melody and harmony speak to our soul and spirit only, but I can say with certainty that that rhythm is what, is what uh, uh, appeals to the body. It's the rhythm that, that makes you tap your toes and clap. And by the way, that's not always a bad thing. I'm not saying that you can't you know, tap your toe to, to the music. And Oh, if you're tapping your toe, then it must be wrong. I'm not saying that. And we'll talk about this later on in, in, in a different week. But uh, it's the rhythm. Like I mentioned, you know, these little babies that have no idea what they're listening to that start moving their bodies. That's the rhythm that's, that's making them do that, right? 
Same thing with when you're somewhere and you hear, a, hear music playing and it just it makes you want to move your body with the music. That's the rhythm that's doing that, that's driving that. So what is indisputable is that rock music flipped the traditional balance of melody and harmony by replacing the rhythm first and foremost. Nothing wrong with rhythm when it's mixed very, very balanced with melody and harmony. You have to have rhythm. If you sang a song with no rhythm, it wouldn't make any sense, right? You have to have a rhythm to it. But when you take the melody and harmony out of it and you make the rhythm the driving force behind it, then that's when it's sensual. That's when it appeals to the body. That's when it, that's when it makes you want to move and do all of these other kind of things. Let me give you an example. 4-4 four, four time signature, and you don't even really have to know music necessarily to see this, but look throughout your songbook. In the songbook, you'll see a 4 over a 4 in a lot of your songs. That's the, that's the, the, the timing of the song. 1, 2, 3, 4. 1, 2, 3, 4. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the, and that's, and that's where you're, that's the one, two, three, four. That's, that's kind of your, that's where your beat lands, if you will. So you have rhythm. It's one, two, that one, two, three, four is your rhythm. That's what is making that music flow along, right? Um, but you also have melody and harmony with that. In a rock beat with a backbeat, your emphasis is not on one, two, three, four. It's on the four. So one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, right? And that's, I mean, that's what makes you want to start doing this with the music, right? Or one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Try singing Jesus loves me to that. Jesus loves me, this I know, right? I mean, you, you can't do it. You can't do it because it's taking the melody and the harmony out of it and made the rhythm first and foremost in that song. Which is why rhythm is important and rhythm is necessary, but it has to flow with the melody and the harmony. And when you take the melody and harmony out of it and you make the rhythm first, then that's when you get to the point where you're starting to move and do all this stuff with your body. And that's where it becomes wrong. So somebody said it this way, and this is, this is a guy by the name of Quentin Schultz, Dancing in the Dark is the name of the book that he wrote. But he said this, the heart of rock and roll is rhythm and beat. Those twin forces give rock its energy and propel its intentionally simple harmony and melody. The appeal does not lie in harmony because most rock and roll music consists of no more than four or five very simple chords in a very clearly defined key. Nor does the attraction lie in melody since the rock and roll vocalist does not so much sing as shout and wail. Gene Greyer wrote a book called A Conceptual Approach to Rock Music. He said this, Rhythm is the most important and basic element of rock music because of the way in which we relate to it. And again, it's because that's what it does. It moves your body, and it moves you in that direction of exactly what all of these people were quoting as being the reason behind why they sing rock and roll music. It's generally agreed upon that the way to make a good rock song is this. Number one, you decide on the time signature. Decide what the, what the backbeat is going to be in that song. Number two, decide on a chord progression. Number three, you write the melody, and then number four, you write the lyrics. It's not about what they're trying to say, although most of the lyrics are not good either, um, and most of the lyrics are basically just going along with what they're already doing with the way that they're thrusting that rhythm forward. But that's exactly what it is. It's not, oh, man. And this is, honestly, you think of most of the Christian songs that we have today, 
were written as a wonderful poem to represent what the, what the writer was feeling about this overwhelming gratitude toward Jesus Christ, right? Out in the foyer, we have the words, it is well. It's written on a piece of paper in a hotel room in Chicago when Horatio Spafford found out that his wife and kids had died on their way over to England in a, in a boat accident, right? He didn't say, hmm, let me think of, the, uh, let me think of a time signature, and then let me think of a, of a beat that I want to use. And then let's try this chord progression. Then, oh, here's a good melody. Now let me think of some words to put with it. No, the first thing that came to his mind is, it is well with my soul. And his heart just overflowed with what God had done for him. It just overflowed with the, with the goodness of God, even in the middle of this tragedy. And he just wrote it down as a poem. And later on, it was put to music, Right? And that's the exact opposite of the way that most rock music is written. Because it's not about the words. It's about the beat. It's about the rhythm. It's about the way that it makes your body move. And wow, that's a really cool chord progression. Let's put some words to that melody. This is great. That's how they do it. And it's the exact wrong direction. And honestly, that's the exact same way that, that contemporary Christian music is being written too. And, and you can tell that. They call them 7-Eleven songs, right? Seven words 11 times. Why is that? Because they're not. It's not about... The words that you're trying to say, it's, wow, listen to that chord progression. Oh, listen to what we can do to fill that in with all the drums and everything else. And let's see, we need to say, we need to, have, we need to find seven words that we can repeat over and over and over just so we can play this progression and make it sound like it's cool, you know? That's what they're doing with this music. And when that is your focus and you're not focused on the melody and the harmony and the words that you're trying to get across, then it's, it's, it's immoral music. Scientifically speaking, even, uh, this rhythm-oriented, backbeat-heavy style of music has been shown to directly affect the body's production of the sexual hormones. Listen to this. Dr. Daniel Skubik, the neuropsychology of rock, wrote this. When the beat generates high levels of sensory, sensory excitation, that is, when due to the pace of the rhythm and loudness of the music, the auditory impact nears maximal reception, the brain is put in a state of stress. This state of stress is measurable in driving brainwave activity. This driving occurs in all people when highly stimulated. Subjective evaluation of the input, such as whether one likes or dislikes the music, is not a factor. To force the activity levels down and to achieve homeostasis, the brain releases the body's natural opioids. These opioids are naturally produced opiates chemically similar to drugs like morphine. Considerable, considerable evidence confirms that rock music generates or enhances that arousal by way of this same process. That is, to high sensory stimulation, the body responds with the release of the gonadotropins as well as opioids. The result is a strong connection forged between a stressed fight-or-flight drive state and the young person's developing sexual drive, which then invariably links arousal to aggression, Rock music both causes and expresses an increasing association of, avert, of overt aggression linked to sexuality. It's also interesting that when this music is played, rap music does the exact same thing except 10 times that in a scientific sense because it's this, it's this aggression, this, 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 uh, you know, this fight or flight mode. You know how it is, right? When you walk outside at night, and it's dark, and you hear a noise, and all of a sudden you feel like somebody's standing right behind you, and you just take off running as fast as you can, right? The hair on the back of your neck stands up and everything else. That's the fight or flight, you know? You either take off running as fast as you can, or you stand and fight, right? 
But it, it's just, and then all of a sudden you, you get into the house and it's, everything's bright again and everything's starting to you know, come down and whatever else, but your body is still, ah, right? That's exactly what that rock music is doing to people in a scientific term. And, and then you're doing this over and over and over and over to young people who are actually still growing and who are actually still uh, developing their systems and everything else. And you can imagine what that does to people. And then rap music, when that's played, it, it, that has no melody or harmony. And that, that, those effects are very much increased when it comes to the same type of scientific effect. Now, go back to James chapter 3. I, I may or may not be correct about my opinion of why rock music is an immoral style of music, but I am correct that it is an immoral style of music. Um, remember, music's morality is reflected in the behavior of the people who listen to it. Evil communications corrupt good manners, right? Communications doesn't have to be just somebody that's talking to you or saying something to you. Communication is something that's being portrayed, something that's being put across. It's a communi you're communicating in some way. Evil communications corrupt those good manners. Not only does the Bible show us that the, you know, the immorality of rock music, so do the secular writers, the musicians, the DJs, the, uh, the researchers, and so on. So why has contemporary Christianity embraced rock music in the name of contemporary Christian music? Apparently, the only people who can't recognize the explicit connection between the rhythms of rock and sexual excess are the Christians of contemporary America. Because we're going into our churches and pretending, I say we're, but Christians in America are going into these churches and pretending that there is no link between the two. To them, it just makes sense to use rock music to attract people and hold people to the modern church because, after all, that's what people like, Right? There is something natural about liking the feeling of moving your body to the music and so on, right? And sometimes you have, to, you have to make yourself control those urges because it is something that appeals to the flesh. It is something that, 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 is, a, you know, that is a driving uh, appeal to the old man, right? We're new creatures. We're no longer part of that old man. It doesn't mean that he's gone. We still fight against that. But just because, well, it's just naturally what your body wants to do. Yes, absolutely. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can they know them because they're spiritually discerned. So push away from that old man by pushing those urges to listen to that music and move your body with that music and all of that stuff. Just because it's a natural thing doesn't mean it's a good thing. right? Your natural inclination is to sin. Is that a good thing? Absolutely not. So just because it's natural doesn't mean that it's good. We need to push away from those types of things. And that's what we're missing in contemporary Christian music. Well, this is what people like. This is what's going to draw people here. This is what's going to make them stay. So this is the music that we're going to play. James agrees that that makes sense. And in fact, he calls it wise. Albeit the worst kind of wisdom. James chapter 3 and verse 15. This wisdom descendeth not from above but it's earthly, sensual, devilish. James was ahead of his time. He perfectly described rock music 1,900 years before it came onto the scene. 
But that's exactly what it is. It's earthly wisdom. Hey, if you think about it in an earthly sense, it makes sense to play that kind of music in church because people like it. It's going to keep them there, right? I mean, look how packed Hillsong is. Look how packed Bethel is. Look how packed these other well-known places are that play this type of music, right? They're packed. People come. But I'm telling you this, it always comes crashing down. It always comes crashing down because it's built on the wrong foundation. Look at what's going on with Hillsong right now. That church is in such upheaval because so many, so many pastors in that church have been accused of sexual, you know, all kinds of things, right? Tell me that music is not tied to that. Tell me that music doesn't drive that. Tell me that music doesn't, doesn't encourage that, right? It's exactly what it's promoting. And that's exactly why these places fall in that way. And they always will continue to fall. Well, God must be blessing it. Look how many people they're bringing in. And God's given them an opportunity to share the message of the gospel. Number one, they're not sharing the message of the gospel. Number two, God's not the one behind it. And number three, it will always come crashing down. It's never going to last because God's not in it. I think it's pretty obvious that not only just according to the Bible, not only according to all these musicians and everybody, everybody else involved in that music industry, that it is earthly, sensual, and devilish. And it's something that we ought to avoid, not just in our personal lives, but in our churches at every aspect, at every turn, at every chance we get to push that away and to stay as far away from it as we possibly can. Continue on with this. Next Sunday, let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. Thank you for the principles that we find in the word of God. I thank you for the fact that we can have joy, we can have peace, we can, we can have tremendous fellowship without bringing in all the things that the world tells us we need to have. Without bringing in all the things that contemporary Christianity tells us we have to do to try to bring people in. And God, even if there's five people left in the auditorium, I pray that you'd help us to stand for the truth that we find in the word of God, that we would not compromise in the area of music or in any other area that would lead us away from being as effective as we possibly can be for you and being faithful to you until the time that you call us home. Pray that this church would be one that continues to stand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, I pray that you'd help us to do it for the glory of God. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.